All right, we come to the conclusion of the book of Job. Uh, that doesn't mean, much to the children's surprise, that I will succeed at concluding Job this week, because I don't know when I've ever been able to teach one lesson in one lesson, but we will see how it goes. <clears throat> I'm also going to struggle going back and forth between our Christopher Ash book and Derek Thomas's, because they're both, as you can imagine, really, really good on the end here. Uh, but it is, an, it is a marvelous conclusion of Job. And so let's start with that. Karen, can you read 7 through 17? After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, in the name of the third, Karen Hapok, and in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Uh, all of you, by the way, should take take Karen's lead on reading Hebrew names. Just plow through them. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Just, just go. Just, I had three years of Hebrew. I don't know. Okay. Just plow through. All right. What an ending. What an ending. If you've read Ash's book on Job, he says a peculiar thing at the start of the ending that is important for us to keep in mind. He says the end comes at the end. Yeah, great. Really helpful. The end comes at the end. This is important because we're going to read about the end of Job. We just did. We're going to talk about what happens at the end of Job's life. You are not at the end of your life. We are not at the end. And this is where Job can be a little bit tough because... Uh, I hope as we talk about it today, you'll see that it doesn't quite get wrapped up with a simplistic pretty bow that you might think. It does get wrapped up nicely as God's, all of God's stories do. But it, it can be a little bitter for us to read the end of Job uh, given the fact that the end comes at the end and we're not there yet. We want Job's outcome. That's what we're waiting for. It's what we're praying for. When our, that's what we're hoping for in faith, is that God will keep the promises he said he will, he will promise. We will have this kind of outcome in all of our stories. 
But we're not at the end. The end comes at the end. And so we're going to read about that for Job, but we need to remember that the end is not the now. It's not the normal. And our approach to what we think is normal for now is going to dictate whether we end up delighted or disappointed at the end of every single day of our lives. If you were waiting for this end today, there's a good chance that you're going to be disappointed with every day. The end comes at the end. And it's the rest of Job that should shape what we think is normal. It's the rest of Job that should make us think this is what life uh, can and very well may be like in this world. Nonetheless, we can experience and approach that life, that suffering, very differently because we know about the end and we know the certainty of the end. So my, my caution to you this morning and with the book of Job is to be careful not to look at the end of Job and think it belongs anywhere except the end and not to look at the end of Job and make that your standard for what a normal day should be like here. So much. You all know this. I know uh, several of you, I think, recently have read a, a book or listened to a sermon that a friend sent on contentment because contentment is so hard. Oh, man, is contentment hard. And what is contentment really about? Contentment's really about our expectations. What do I expect? And when things are not meeting our expectations, we're discontent. I don't have what I deserve. I don't have what's good enough. How could anybody put up with this? How could anybody deal with this? How could anybody go on with this? That's discontentment. I need something other than what I have. I need more. I need better. Whether that's humans or stuff. Or circumstances. I need more. I need better. And, and what Job offers us is an opportunity to reset our understanding of normal. What must life in this world be like? And why is that ultimately for our good and God's glory? And that can help us with our contentment challenges too. Because that new way of viewing uh, normal helps us to view every day it gives us the opportunity to think about every days not as disappointments, but as delights. That's the secret to contentment. Uh, now, if any of you find it, let me know. I would, would, would love to get better at that. All right, so in 42, we have the closure to the story. And on, on the face of it, Ash says, it's a bit of an anticlimax. And it's not that what happens at the end isn't, isn't good. Uh, obviously, it's, it's great. But we've just gone through 39 chapters of beautiful, emotion-evoking poetry. Job has been poetry. The whole middle section. It's been indented in your Bible. Job is poetry. And we just immediately got finished with these dramatic poems about the behemoth and the Leviathan, this lofty imagery. 
And then we follow that up with Job's lofty confession of who God is and his right vision of God. And then how it ends is it goes back to prose. I think the indenting in your Bible should go away, starting around verse 7. And the Lord has a quiet word of rebuke for Job's friends. Job prays for them and they're forgiven. And then it all ends happily. Everything else gets, there is no undoing, but everything else gets given back and in greater measure. Uh, Nathan, will you turn, uh, that's going to be a high pressure moment. Will you find the book of James? (laughs) James 5. It's putting somebody under the pressure of, hey, find a tiny book in a sliver of your Bible. Um, You may need the table of contents at the front. It's tricky to find, James. It's, It's slim. I want us to think about, in addition to this passage in Job at the end, um, then this is Ash's idea. For those of you who haven't been in the class before, just because there's a few of you, a lot of what I'm saying, especially the stuff that sounds smart, is from Christopher Ash's book on Job. Uh, So I don't quote him all the time, but we're working through that book together, and that's been really helpful. In addition to the text from Job, you may remember that James talks about Job in the book of James. Can you find James 5? Will you read 5.11 loudly for us, please? Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Thank you. I want us to consider that text as well, because I think that tells us a lot about how we should interpret the end of Job. I think James gives us some insight to some things that are happening here at the end of Job that we otherwise might not notice, because James focuses on two things. He focuses on Job's perseverance, and you say, yeah, I guess. And he focuses on the Lord's compassion and mercy. What? (laughs) That's probably not where we would have been going when we think about Job. So let's talk about those things. First, let's talk about Job's perseverance. Perseverance is the word in the Bible. It's steadfastness. It's the word patience. Those are all related words. But the thing that you've got to know about perseverance in the Bible or patience in the Bible is that these are active words. We tend to think about perseverance as a passive word. You endure something. You made it through something. Something happened to you, and you didn't fall apart. You stayed in place, so to speak. We think about patience as endurance. You're, just, it's, it, you're getting it over with. Um, but when the Bible talks about perseverance, that's why sometimes the word is translated steadfastness. It's a very active word. What James says Job did right is not that Job just sat back and let all of this happen to him. What, what James says Job did right is that he went through this with steadfastness, with perseverance. And Ash talks about two types of perseverance for Job. One of them is perseverance in warfare. Job 
has been fighting a battle. And, and you need to be able to put what happens to Job very much in the context of the way Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. Blessed are you when others persecute you and hate you and revile you. But it doesn't stop there, does it? There's, a, there's more. Because of me, Jesus says. You're not, you're, you're not living under the blessing of God just because people hate you. You might be. Uh, you might be hated not because of living under the blessing of God. You might be hated because you're a jerk and you need to be hated. Right? And so the beatitude, the blessing, is not just for those who are reviled. It's for those who are reviled on account of Christ. Why did all this happen to Job? That's how the book begins. Have you see- Satan says, hey, You don't see many Christians around these parts. And God, thanks God, says, see my servant Job? My servant Job. You see my servant Job? (coughs) Satan says, oh, he's not really a servant. He doesn't really love you. He wouldn't really honor you. You've just given him this amazing life. And who wouldn't honor you if they'd been given that sort of life? And God says, no, no, Job's really my servant. Take away everything he has. Don't kill him, but take away everything he has, and he will still be my servant. Satan says, challenge accepted. All of this happened to Job because he is God's servant. All of it. All the suffering, all the pain, all the loss, all the hardship, all the confusion, all the alienation, all the attacks of Satan, all of it happened because he is a servant of God. That is warfare. And what's so brutal about the warfare of Job is that Job is not a combatant on the battlefield. Job is the battlefield. Doesn't it feel like that? I grieve you read, go back and think about some of the stuff we read. Most of us were tearing up reading some of the chapters of Job in this classroom, right? Job is the battlefield. Ash says, the battle for the soul of Job is fought out in his struggles as the monster tears at his life. Satan, the Leviathan, tearing at his life in his battle with God. It is a dark warfare. Satan fills Job's mind with images of despair, darkness, death, and futility. Job is taken through the valley of the shadow of death. See, when you're going through this stuff, when you're going through suffering, God has brought this into your life for his uh, saving and glorifying purposes. That doesn't mean Satan's not also being opportunistic. When you look back on the darkest dark times, other people will think, will we'll look at what happened to you. They'll look at the circumstances or the events and they will be deeply sympathetic with how horrible those events are. You lost a loved one to death. You dealt with disease. Your relationship was crushed. Like People can be very sympathetic to the what happened that put you in the darkness. But if they have never walked through the darkness as a servant of Christ... They have no idea that the darkest, darkest, darkest part of the darkness is what Satan is saying to you the whole time. 
And Job was there. And Job was there. The monster tearing at his life, this dark warfare. Job was, was there. Makes Psalm 23 take on new meaning, doesn't it? Or 32 take on new meaning, doesn't it? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Job longed for death. Death would have been a relief. But the pain, the darkness, and then what Satan speaks into that. For he is with me, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Oh, it's good stuff. Job is not about human suffering in general. Job is about the suffering endured by a believer because he or she is a believer. This happened to Job because Job was God's servant. Now, put on your Bible scholar hats for a minute. Let's take ourselves out of the picture, and we'll bring ourselves back into it in a minute. But theologically speaking, we call Job a what of Christ? Job is a type of Christ. What does that mean? It doesn't mean the way we use the word today, that Job's, you know, he's kind of like Christ. No, no, it means that the things that happen in Job's life, theologically, are very significantly pointed to show us what would have to be true about Christ. Right? Do you see it? (laughs) Do you see it? Not just suffering in general. Suffering because Job is a servant of God. Suffering because life is lived for the sake of obedience to God. That's why Job suffered. Why did Christ suffer? For the sake of obedience to God. I came not to do my will, but to do the Father's will. And even when Jesus Christ cries out in the garden, if it's any other way that this is possible, when God says, no, there is no other way this is possible, what does Jesus say? Not my will, but thy will be done. And what does he say? I mean, Jesus, who understands exactly what's going on, and what does he say on the cross? Forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even see the significance of what's happening. How could they? It's heavenly realm. It's spiritual warfare. It's so far beyond us. Man, we don't... We're we're lucky to understand by the Spirit half of what we got. (laughs) So Job is this type of Christ. Jesus is the blameless believer. Satan attacks Job. Does Satan attack Jesus? Worst we've ever seen, right? Most dramatic in the history of the world. So dramatic. You know what Satan will do to attack Jesus? Let's kill all the newborn children. Let's just find him and kill him. That didn't work. Let's call him into the desert and see if we can tempt him away. I'll offer him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus experienced this dark warfare. You think it wasn't Satan trying to tear at Jesus's soul in the garden? You don't have what you thought you had, Jesus. The Trinity is not what you think it is. Your relationship to the Father and the Spirit was never what you thought it was. God does not love you. You think Satan didn't hear, or Jesus didn't hear that from Satan? 
That's the agony of the garden. Temptation, discouragement, loneliness, betrayal, misunderstanding, agony. That's the darkness of the the warfare that Jesus experienced. And then in Job, we get to see this really dramatic portrayal of the human version of that. The same thing for the same reason. Isn't this what Jesus said to Peter? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You know what's always bugged me about that prayer? All right, the, 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 the prayers, the fervent prayer of a righteous man is effectual. It availeth much, right? So Jesus' prayers are probably pretty effective. Let's just put that out there. So what really bothers me about that prayer, it's been this way my whole life, is that Jesus did not pray that Peter would be spared the sifting. (laughs) He, He didn't pray that Peter would be spared Satan's dark assaults. He prayed that Simon's faith would not fail. Jesus expected the sifting. He expected it to happen. He knew it would be a part of Peter's life following Jesus. Why? Because Jesus lived it. It was a part of Jesus' life. And if Peter is going to follow after Jesus, if he's going to be buried with Jesus so he can be raised with Jesus, he's going to experience the same thing. So Jesus doesn't even waste his time praying that Peter would not be sifted. He just prays that his faith would not fail. I'm going to try to read this. This is really hard. I, I, read this, I read this a few weeks ago. I bet I read this a month ago to try and prepare myself to be able to read this in a group of people. I'm going to get through this. It's going to be good. <clears throat> Every morning, this is from Ash's book. Every morning we ought to wake up and say to ourselves, there is a vicious, dark spiritual battle being waged over me today. Satan is very busy. Wherever on earth there is a believer walking with God in loving fear, God says, look, there's a believer. And Satan says, may I attack her? I want to prove whether this is a real believer. And sometimes the Lord grants that terrible permission. And when he does, we ought not be surprised as though something strange were happening to us. 1 Peter 4.12. You see how it all comes together. And you think, oh man, this is the cost of following Jesus? Yes. Yes. The cost of following Jesus is to be united with Jesus. You can't follow a man of sorrows at a superficial level. You can't actually be all in on Christ, fully devoted to Christ, united with Christ, and say, but I'm going to stand over here. I'm going to let you deal with Satan's attacks. I'm going to let you deal with the darkness of life in this broken and cursed world. And I'll just wait for the good parts to come. Questions about his perseverance in warfare. I don't, I mean, especially to the, to the kids, the teens, I, I don't want this to seem overdramatic because you can't overdramatize this. There is a darkness that happens in this world because of Satan's warfare against God that is 
beyond our imagining until we experience it. And then there's even more beyond that. Um, and the answer is not to be discouraged or to despair. The answer is to draw closer to Christ, the only one who can tame the Leviathan. That was the point of the behemoth and the Leviathan text. is to show you how far out of our pitiful efforts at control this <laughs> stuff is. Show me a person, the more convinced they are, that they have it all under control and can have it all under their control. And I will show you someone who doesn't get it. You can't get it that way. I don't think you're saying, and I don't think this is saying, that we all need to go get bumper stickers that says, waiting on the 14,000 sheep, and the female donkeys. Because we all know godly people who died without that. That's right. At the end of their life. That's right. They died a horrific end of their life. Yep. Yeah, Job gets a taste, an expression of the blessing that is to come in this life. He gets a a grasp of the end a little before the end. Um, We may not. You know, the most... We all have our, our personal examples. Some of the great ones, though, are the stories of the martyrs in Scotland. Um, two men tied to posts as the tide comes in to drown them, singing psalms to the end. Presbyterian women, mothers of our faith, tied to post, burned, praying for their persecutors as they go up in flames. We may think we don't have that in us. (laughs) But look at what Job just did. Yeah. In thinking about um, spiritual warfare, I'm, I'm struggling with kind of this idea of, you know, the common caricature of an angel on your left shoulder and the devil on your right shoulder and I'm just wondering about um, that spiritual realm like how do we not go too far into becoming a bit mythical with it but also acknowledging the reality that you know angels and demons are fighting each other if if that is the case I'm I'm just wondering about the spiritual realm and how we should think about it yeah um so the, the very first most important thing to get right about the supernatural realm is that uh, it's not it, when we think about a fight, we think about generally fights that are evenly matched. We think about a situation where either side could prevail. That's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not, you know, Every now and then, God comes home after a bad day licking his wounds that they really, Satan really stuck it to him on the battlefield. Uh, spiritual warfare is Satan and his minions being permitted by God and used by God, which is our real struggle with Job, right? To create, to make bad in this world, to disrupt goodness in this world for God's ultimately good purposes, so it's not like opposing sides on a battlefield. It's 
God is redeeming Job. God is saving Job from his sins. God is pulling Job out of the pit and the the slavery to sin in which Job finds himself and is glad to be in when he's an unbeliever pre this book. And Satan is grasping to do every single thing he can to stop God from saving Job. He can't win because God has purposed every one of those things. Satan's a dog on a leash. God has purposed every one of those things to be the very things that will save Job. Some of the worst things that will, all of the worst things that will happen in your life and in your head are what God is using to save you. And if you don't believe that, think about the alternative. The alternatives are either you were strong enough to endure those things and fight them off yourself. (laughs) I got a bridge I'll sell you. I don't even want to do do this segment. (laughs) Um, The alternatives are really bad. The alternatives are not logically true. They're not biblically true. God has purposed those things to save you. If you don't believe me, think back. Think back into the darkness. And think back that instead of walking with God through that, instead of relying on him entirely because there's just not a single thing you can do or think or say that makes any sense, what if instead of doing that you did anything else? It costs you your soul. All those other options. All of them are idolatry. All of them are trust in self. Like... It's, it's back to the line we've quoted so much in this class. Where else would we go, Lord? These are hard words. Where else would we go? You have the words of life. When I look at all of the other alternatives, I'm dead in my sin and trespasses. So I can choose misery, dead in my sin and trespasses, or misery that gives way to glory in Christ. Yeah, we should talk more about spiritual warfare sometime. I'll put that on the, on the list. It's not two armies on a battlefield. It is God doing what God will do and the dog Satan on the leash having an uncomfortable amount of opportunity to wage war on us and with us. Uh, But never for a moment think they're evenly matched. It's not that kind of warfare. How are we to kind of reconcile the kind of suffering that Job went through Peter, probably much less. Others hardly noticeable. I'm I'm just going to speak to to God's children, to those who are in Christ for a minute. I'm going to set aside those who are vessels of wrath. God gives you exactly to the pika leader. I don't know anything smaller than that, but I'm sure there is. God gives you to the peak a leader, no rounding, exactly the amount of suffering that you need in your life to be saved. He does not give you one peak a leader more. By his grace, he will not give us one peak a leader less, though that's hard to say. But he gives you exactly what you need. Some need more than others. Yeah, it's, 
because one of the things we've talked about in Job is that, yes, Job is the battlefield of this cosmic debate between God and Satan. But Job needed this suffering, too, because Job had such hidden sin. Job, who is a servant of God. Job, who, if he had died in this suffering, would have gone to heaven. Had such hidden sin buried deep, 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 deep down within. He never could have found it without this. And what every servant of God should want more than anything else is a closer walk with God. Nobody should want suffering. You're not crazy people. But what you should want more than anything else is a closer walk with God. And, if, and, and to have that closer walk with God, more and more sin has to be put to death. That's, that's just the way it has to work. God is perfectly holy. The closer we want to be with him, the more of our unrighteousness daily has to fall away. If the only way you will ever deal with that sin is for you to find that sin, then how will he show us the sin? And so many times, I'm sorry it's this way, you guys. I'm, I'm so, as your pastor, I'm emotionally sorry that it is this way. But so many times, the only way God, the best way, And therefore, the only way we ever would have seen that sin is for suffering, is for brokenness. Because what God cares about most is that he will be glorified in our salvation. God could care most about him being glorified in just being done with us, but he's not. He will be glorified in the salvation of his people And so we've got to become more like Christ so that we can walk more closely with him so that he can make us more and more perfect until the day of his coming when we are perfect, not divine, but perfect. Westminster Confession says, the church exists for the gathering and the perfection of the saints. The visible church on earth exists for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. The way they mean that, perfecting, is that you have to be made by God more and more like Jesus until the day when you are perfect. That's the day of his coming, not a second before. (laughs) But being perfected, being sanctified, putting sin to death, the New Testament talks about these all the time. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen through preaching and teaching. It's going to happen through the means of grace. It's going to happen through prayer. It's going to happen through learning from experience. And it's going to happen through suffering. Aren't those, upon reflection, aren't there some sins in your life that you could admit you never would have seen without the suffering? Second type of perseverance is a perseverance in waiting. It's not passive, though. So he perseveres in warfare. He also perseveres in waiting. And that sounds like passive, but it's not. Because it's active, prayer-filled waiting. 
In verse 7, God said to Eliphaz, you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Does that give anybody else a double take? What, wait, <laughs> not, okay, we know Eliphaz was wrong, except on the word level, Eliphaz isn't wrong a whole lot. Go back and read the words that Eliphaz says. He's pretty factually accurate about God. He's inaccurate about Job's circumstances. He's inaccurate about the system. He's wrong about all that stuff. But factual accuracy about God, Eliphaz pretty good on it. And God doesn't just say Eliphaz is wrong. He says, you have not spoken right as my servant Job has. Well, didn't we just get done saying Job said all these terrible things about God and not revealed the self-righteousness and the sin that God was dealing with all along? What happened? I think Ash gets this exactly right. This is admittedly tough in, in Hebrew and theologically. It is tough. To, to wrestle with this. I think Ash gets it exactly right. That, that God's conclusion applies not just to who Job, uh, or to what Job said, but to who Job is. And his con- conclusion applied not just to what Eliphaz said, but to who Eliphaz is. Remember, Eliphaz has this tight theological scheme. Eliphaz has a tidy system, a, a well-defined understanding of the world in which he is entirely satisfied with his worldview and this formula of how life will work with God. I give God X, God gives me back Y. If God gives me back something bad, I know I did something bad. I repent, I do better, and God gives me back better. Eliphaz was quite pleased with that formulaic system and approach to God. And within that formula, he said things about God that were really factually accurate. So why were they wrong? God is not a formula. God is a person. There's no relationship with God behind that formula. If you attempt to approach Christianity or life in this world in a formulaic way, I put in this and I'll get that out. I did my part and I get this back. You'll go mad. You'll go mad. And if God is merciful, you'll never get what you're looking for. Because if you do get what you're looking for that way, his mercy is is missing. You'll never get what you're looking for. God is a person. And it's a relationship, not a formula. And so the friends say some things about God that are true. They make theologically factual statements. But they have no relationship with God, no seeking for God, no longing for God. And so they can't speak rightly of God. You can't speak rightly of God as an abstract object. You speak rightly of God as a person. You can write a Wikipedia entry about love that has factually true statements about love. But can you write the truth about love if you've never been loved or never loved? It's, it's, it's madness. 
And so it is with God. And that's why Job speaks rightly. Job said things about God that were factually wrong. God corrects them because God cares about accuracy about himself. It's not that God's indifferent about the content. God corrects Job and what Job has wrong. But what Job has done in his speech is more truthful than some of the errors Job has said out loud. Because what Job, what has Job said over and over and over again? I want to stand before God and make my case. I want to be with God. I want to plead with God. I want to be in front of God. I want God to justify me. I want God to vindicate me. Job wants God. Where Job really struggles is, well, that ain't going to work. God's big and I'm not and I'm sinful. And God's, and I, Job gets in, I need a mediator and all that stuff is there. And then when Job gets in his real dark place and Satan's doing his work and, Job, and, and when that sin that was within Job that he didn't even know was there when it came out, yeah, Job says things like, I'd run a better world than God would. And then what does he follow that up with? Let me go tell him. <laughs> I want to be face to face with him so I can tell him. The rightness of Job's heart throughout this book is what leads to the repentance at the end. When you are trying to be encouraged by someone's, by someone else's battle with sin, the tendency is to get hung up on the words. Are the words right? But we all know that's not going to be the defining characteristic of whether this is successful, right? It's the heart. It's the heart. Don't look for their heart toward you. Don't look for their heart toward the, the relationship you're hoping they repair. Look to their heart toward God. Job's faithfulness to God. All this other stuff comes out. False doctrine comes out. Anger comes out. D- discontent comes out. Self-righteousness comes out. All this other stuff comes out. Why doesn't God just say, you know what? Sorry, Job. You're on the other list now. Faithfulness. The faithfulness is the leading indicator of repentance. So as you think, especially as you think about children, that's what I was thinking about, especially as you think about your children and so much you want from them and what their lives or faithfulness will look like going forward. The heart of faith. The heart of faith may take a journey through bad doctrine, may take a journey through disobedience, may take a journey through anger, may take a journey through self-righteousness. But the heart of faith is something that God gives and it does not fail. That's why our prayer for our children, no matter their age, should be that they'd have real, abiding, genuine faith. Because you don't want to say nothing else matters because we care about the other stuff. But really, you guys, nothing else matters. Because the heart of faith is the leading indicator of repentance. If one is there, the other will be. Oh, but I don't see repentance. I get it. I get it. The heart of faith. That's the prayer. That's the, that's the focus. That's the measure. That's what we're after. The rightness of Job's heart is what brings about his repentance in the end. And the other stuff are just more objects for repentance. <laughs> that's what they become. 
Sin's really, really bad when it happens. We should never sin on purpose. We should never be eager to sin. We should never put ourselves in, in uh, purposely in tempting situations where we're likely to sin. That's just bad judgment. Sin is really, really, really bad. But when the whole story is over, do you know what our sins are? They're one more glorious experience of God's forgiveness. The, the, the pile that shows us how much God loves us and the, the 70 times 7 of God's forgiveness, they're a testimony to that. I'm not saying sin. I'm not saying like your sin. I'm not saying add more sins. I'm not saying you should sin more that grace may abound. But the reason why that's in the Bible is because there's a, there's, it's a perversion of a truth, which is that you look at the greatness of your sin as an increase of your failure. And in cosmic reality, the increase of your sin is evidence of the increase of his grace. That's pretty remarkable. Don't sin so that grace may abound, but you get what I'm saying. In his his affirmation of Job, in spite of the terrible things Job says about God, we are forcibly reminded that God, for all of his rough handling of his servants' rude demands, reads between the lines and listens to the heart. Some of you in this room have extremely tender consciences. Uh, I've read about those. (laughs) You have extremely tender consciences. And there will be times when you don't even think you're repenting right. (laughs) You don't think you're forgiving right. You don't think you're repenting right. You don't think... And I hope that this aspect of Job is an encouragement to you. That, That God, it's not a careful way to say it, but with Job, God reads between the lines. Job says terrible things about God. Job says self aggrandizing things about himself. He thinks he can run the world better. Even Job's first apology, you married people will have real experience of this, your first apology isn't any good. <laughs> his apology to God for all this junk he says is, you know what, you're right, you're God and I'm not. The end. <laughs> this guy's like, no, no, let's go back to this again. And then Job does get there. Oh, you're God, I'm not, and you're good. And everything you're doing is right. Not just I have to tolerate it, but it is what I should want. Because if it comes from you, it is right. Ah, that's the apology. That's the repentance. But Job did it the first time and God wasn't done with him. God kept going because God reads between the lines, the heart of faith. God sees it. And so you tender conscience people, when you beat yourselves up, come back to this and say, God sees my heart. God's not hung up on the exact words you used. He wants you to use the right words. That's why he teaches you the right words. And part of our growth by grace is that we learn the right words. But that's so that we can draw closer to God. That's not because God is displeased with us and pushes us away just because we got it wrong. Questions about that? That is Job. Next week, we'll talk about the compassion and mercy of the Lord. Taking a little excursus on James before we wrap up Job. Questions about Job's perseverance. It ties in so nicely with the sermon. 
Well, the thing you described there about the, the pattern of sin in all of our relationships, um, the temptation is always to rationalize it. After your first horrible apology, you still rationalize it. Well, you know that's just had to happen because blah, blah, blah. Well, no, it didn't, you know. And so I like the point you made a couple Sundays ago about that verse 42, 5, where he says, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent and dust and ashes. So the humility piece is really huge. And until you get to the humility surrender piece, you're not there. Some of us will come there. Some of us, the way we're wired, have to come there systematically, logically. Like, there's not one way better or worse. The emotional approach to that, the leading with the heart approach to that, God's wired that to be effective for, for many. Of, of just, I need that relationship with God and I feel broken without it. And anything that makes that feel at peril. I resist and draw back to God. God wired people that way. That's good. That's the, the other way God wired people, you and I, is we got to come at this systematically. What matters most? When, when you say the, the crappy apology and you make excuses, when you dig in on your own sin, when you, what actually matters most? And what are my behaviors suggesting matters most? And there's a gap between those when we're sinning. Because by the heart of faith, I know what matters most. I really, really, really know what matters most. If you watch my behavior, you might be really, really confused about what I think matters most. And for God to show us that, I think that's what, that's what Job's asking for. He just can't articulate it yet. 